Father, as we, as we briefly look into the book of Ephesians today, we pray that you would help us and be with us. Um, give us the grace to understand these things that um, are really too great for comprehension. As, as Paul says, um, we should pray that we could understand the love of Christ that exceeds all knowledge. And um, we pray that even if our best thoughts about you and, and our best thoughts about your love fall short of the reality, that we would at least get closer and closer to it. For we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, really briefly, um, the reason that uh, that memory verse I think was really good, the Galatians 2.21, is as we cover Paul's theology, Galatians 2.20 is a really good summary of the things that are like really central to the heart of Paul's thought. Um, I've been co-crucified, I've been crucified with Christ. So Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can hear there um, the, the very strong emphasis on the fact that the Christian life is based on faith there. Um, you can also hear the really strong emphasis of um, union with Christ. When Christ died, you know who else died? You did, if you're a believer. Um, in his crucifixion, your old self, your sin nature was nailed to the cross. And because of that, because you died with Christ, whenever he got out of the tomb, you know who else got out of the tomb? You did, and you have new life now. Jesus dies with our old nature, and he's raised to new life. Um, you know, sometimes um, in, in kind of scholastic theology circles, um, there's a criticism that is levied a, against um, certain belief systems of, of saying that the gospel creates a legal fiction. Um, you know, your sin is offensive to God, and, and it deserves punishment, but Jesus died, so now your sin uh, has been forgiven. And Jesus' perfect life now counts for you. You've not actually been righteous, but his perfect life now counts for you. And so God is seeing you as a perfectly righteous person, even though in reality you're a sinner. And some people critique those ideas by saying that creates a legal fiction. It's basically like one thing is true, the fact that you're a sinner is true, but now God is choosing to kind of act like a different reality is true, that you're actually righteous. And Paul's theology really cuts against that sort of a criticism because in Paul's thought, um, the life of Christ is now the life of the Christian, and the life of the Christian is now the life of Christ. You have so much oneness with Jesus that statements like, your sin nature was what was crucified, are true in Paul's theology. Um, so, you know, who was punished at the cross, according to Paul? Well, Christ was on your behalf, but also, in a really real sense, you were too. Um, at the cross, you experienced judgment for your sins, and through his resurrection, you have new life as well. So, this is a, this is a really central idea in his writings. Um, what I want to do in the little bit of time that we have today is look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Um, you guys read through all of Ephesians by now, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Um, in your Bible, how many paragraphs is it? How many what? Paragraphs. Two. Two? In Greek, this is one sentence. It is the most insane run-on sentence ever constructed. 
Paul does that on purpose. Um, sometimes Paul purposefully uses bad grammar. Um, it's not that he's just like out to make grammatical mistakes. It, it's always with a purpose. Um, you know, sometimes we use grammatical mistakes um, in, in order to, like for emphasis, right? Um, um, never, never, never do blank. I mean, technically, are you supposed to use two negatives together? But you can, you can do something like that in order to, to raise a point of emphasis, right? So Paul um, makes this like crazy run-on sentence. All of verses 3 through 14, one sentence. I don't know how many it is in English, but it is much more than one. Um, but what Paul does at the very beginning of Ephesians is he begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he's going to start listing off the different spiritual blessings that Christians have through the gospel. And his point, as he's writing this really long run-on sentence, is to try to overwhelm you. As you're, if you read like one run-on sentence that went for two paragraphs, would that be really overwhelming to read? Would it be kind of hard to read that? Yeah, you ever had to do like peer review for some of your friends' papers? and they just like don't know when to use punctuation. And it's like, <gasps> like I mean, you almost feel out of breath. And Paul is doing that on purpose. He's saying, you have been blessed by God the Father in Christ with all of these spiritual blessings through the gospel. And then he's just gonna start running through what they are really, really fast, one after another, in order to give you the sense of how overwhelming, how huge, how glorious the blessings of the gospel are. So, um, the way that Paul structures this is very interesting. He begins by talking about the spiritual gifts which come from God the Father. And then he talks about the spiritual gifts which have come from God the Son. And then he talks about the spiritual gifts or the spiritual blessings which come from the Holy Spirit. So he uses um, kind of a, a Trinitarian outline for these um, for this really long run-on sentence. And um, his goal here, again, is to kind of overwhelm you with all that we have uh, given to us in the gospel. So what I want to kind of do for our notes in about 10 minutes or so, if we can make it through, is to list off um, what each person of the Trinity does in this text according to Paul. So follow along with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's the act, actor here? Blessed be the God and the Father, all right, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, who is the he? The Father. Even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So what's the first thing that the Father does? What is he? Yeah, the Father chose us. By the way, when did he do that? Yeah, before the foundation of the world. Um, I really like that text um, because it gives uh, a really fun mental image in Greek. Um, what does it say specifically? Before the foundation of the world, right? Um, the word for um, foundation is this picture word um, where, like, um, you throw it down, 
Like, literally, you, you could translate this. Um, he chose us in Christ before the throwing down of the world. It's just kind of an interesting picture. Um, so he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, the Father, what comes next? There in verse 5. In love, he predestined us. So he chose us. He predestined us. Um, for adoption to himself as sons. So what else has he done? Adopted. Adopted. Um, adoption is another place where union with Christ is very important to Paul. Um, Jesus is the true son of God. He is God the son. You have union with him, though. So now you are sons of God as well. Your sons in the son. So however God the father feels about God the son is how he feels about you now. So he's predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And who would the beloved be? That's a capital B. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus in which, um, the end of verse six, in which the father has blessed us in the beloved. He's blessed us in, in Jesus, in Christ. In him, um, now we're, the him is the beloved, um, which is Jesus. So in verse seven, this is where I would probably put a paragraph break um, even though our Bibles aren't doing that, in verse 7, we're going from the Father, and now we're focusing on the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood. So what does Jesus do for us in, in that verse? Redeems us with his what? Yeah, redeems us with his blood. Um. The, uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So what else does he give us? Yeah, gives forgiveness. According to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, um, making known to us the mystery of his will. What, what would that, how would we maybe say that? What has Jesus done? Yeah, the, the mystery um, of, of his will, um, we're going to see later in Ephesians, that has to do with the fact that um, Jews and Gentiles can come together as one body. This is something that was kind of hinted at in the Old Testament, but it really is revealed more fully in the New Testament. So I think that uh, maybe what we would say there is that the Son reveals truth to us. Um, it's um, He reveals who God is most fully to us. Um, he reveals the kind of the fulfillment, the full plan of the gospel to us. Um, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We could put some other things up there, lavishes us with grace, unites things, but we'll just kind of leave it for, there for now. And then verse 11, um, this is going to kind of shift and start talking about the spirit. 
In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does what? Seals us. Not arc, arc, clap, 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 but like officially sealed, right? No, no, bad, stop. Uh, um, <laughs> so he is a seal. And then in verse 14, um, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So um, he, is, he guarantees our inheritance. So put this down in your notes. Uh, We don't have a lot of time left, but we will start to talk through these things a little bit more. Anything stick out to you right off the bat? And and of course, like we said with with here, we could put a couple of different things too. We're just going to keep it here for now. But anything that um, sticks out to you right off the bat about looking at this? That sticks out to you? Uh, why in particular? It's a tricky word, right? Um, that word only shows up here and in Romans chapter 8, and we talked about it a little bit in Romans 8. Um, predestined is a word that sometimes is just kind of scary to hear, um, but it's, is it a word that's in the Bible? Yeah. So it's a word that as believers, um, can we just skip over it and pretend it's not there? Should we do that if we have a high view of the Bible? No. Um, so we should try to understand what it means. It's used twice in this text. It's used in verse 5, and it's also used down in verse 11. Um, <coughs> notice in this text, predestination is only a positive thing. You were predestined in God's love to be adopted as sons, and you were predestined in order to obtain an inheritance. A predestination is a positive thing that is applied for, to believers. Um, in Romans chapter 8, um, you remember we looked at like the chain of salvation in Romans 8 where God foreknew, uh, and then he predestined, and then he called, justified, and glorified and we mentioned how this is something that's entirely for believers the only people who are glorified are believers and in Romans 8 29 and 30 you don't lose anyone as you go from group to group so everyone who was glorified was first justified was first called was first predestined was first foreknown everyone who was foreknown was predestined called justified glorified So it's good to point out that predestination is a positive term that is applied to believers, okay? We'll talk about why that's important a little bit more tomorrow. Um, But uh, yeah, a little bit of a tricky word. What else sticks out to you from, uh, from, from looking at this? What sticks out to you from a time standpoint? 
Yeah, the the language that is used for the father um, is really kind of past tense type stuff. Um, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us so that we would be adopted as sons. And then the work of the son um, is really about his passion. He redeemed us with his blood so that we could have forgiveness, and he revealed the truth of um, who God was and God's plan to us. So we could say that this was like really, really past tense. The work of the uh, son is also past tense, just not as much, right? This is talking about like Jesus's earthly ministry, dying on the cross, stuff like that. Um, the work of the spirit, though, what tense was it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all current type stuff. Like it might use ED type language because this is people who have already received the spirit. But the work of the spirit is kind of this current thing. He seals us and he guarantees the inheritance for us. So we'll look at that a little bit tomorrow as well. But it's 955. So um, have this in your notes. And then whenever we come in tomorrow, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, no reading tonight.